Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the first of the Division capsules, which are a hallmark of Real Jam Radio. For those of you who are unfamiliar, we do an off-season review and a regular season preview in the same episode. And so I always do these with two guests so then they can bounce off each other and, of course, off me. And the first one is the Atlantic Division. The Atlantic Division, we actually had uh, holdovers from last year. I, l- I love the podcast so much that I wanted to bring both of them back, longtime friends of the show. Jared Weiss of CLNS Media and Celtics Blog and Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post. And so we talk about all of the teams, of course, if, you, if you're spending the amount of time we are on it, you go through it from a lot of different angles, the big moves that happen, the draft picks, and there are a lot of interesting rookies and everything like that in this class. And then where we expect things to go in the season, who we expect to make the playoffs, who we don't, how the seeding's going to work out and breakout players. So you should definitely check out the whole thing. And this episode is brought to you by Audible, a sponsor that I'm really excited to have back because I'm just, I've been a fan of their product long before they were a sponsor. Audible.com slash RealGM. You can check it out. You get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook for your trouble. So again, that's Audible.com slash RealGM. Conversation runs a little bit over an hour. Uh, it was fun. We went into a lot of different angles on it. I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks so much for coming on. Happy to be here, man. Great to be here. So you guys have both done this before. Combination, off-season review, regular season preview. We'll go through the entire Atlantic Division. And we'll begin this with a very basic question, which is, who got better and who got worse? Man, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird question because I, I, think, I think when you look at it in the abstract, the two teams that finished last in the division, Brooklyn and, and Philly, I think both got better probably made the biggest jumps in terms of talent onto their rosters. I know that I know that Boston added the best player, obviously, in Gordon Hayward, but losing Avery Bradley is a pretty big loss for them. So while I would say that getting Hayward allows the Celtics to take a step forward, it probably isn't nearly as big a step as they might have assumed if going into the offseason they thought they were going to get Gordon Hayward. But I, I think you look at Philly uh, getting Markel Fultz, which I, I thought was a huge upgrade for them at a position they really needed. I love the trade they made with Boston. You know, I thought the Nets getting D'Angelo Russell uh, in in the trade with the Lakers for Brook Lopez, um, getting Jared Allen as a first round pick, even though I didn't like the trade, Allen Crabb will help them on the court this year. Uh, Demar Carroll, I think, could potentially help them a little bit on the court this year. Plus, they got future picks with him too. Uh, so I, I think that they got better, and I, I would say Boston got better. So obviously, so those three teams did. I think Toronto took a step back, and it could be kind of a significant one. And the Knicks just did more Knicks things. Yeah, I mean, New York is kind of just running in circles in their own swamp of a mess there. So there's no there, there's no end in sight, I guess, on that one. And Toronto, I, I'm I'm trying I'm still kind of going back and forth on my head over how much of a step back I think they took. But either way. They stagnate after falling out in the... I'm kind of surprised that they didn't try to kind of reposition themselves more than they did. You know, they kind of made their own bed with that Ibaka trade where they guess they weren't willing to look at that as a sunk cost and move on from it. And they wanted to go... You know, they wanted to keep them around, which, hey, might be a decent idea. But there's nothing that happened this offseason that makes me think like Toronto has somehow re-altered their position to really make a run 
but at the on the other hand, the Eastern Conference, especially if if a Kyrie trade does go down, the Eastern Conference is, feels pretty wide open for the taking for any team that really puts it together. Because I think Tim is right that Boston they took a moderate step forward coming into the offseason. I'm sure they had they there is a lot more potential for them to take a bigger step forward than they actually did. They're still in a they're still in a pretty great position. It's not like they've kind of uh, fallen off the track for where their eventual destiny can be. But they weren't, I mean, the, the Bradley trade for Marcus Morris, it's like, I, I figured Bradley was probably the guy that was going to get traded and to get another good rotation player that is, you know, cap wise, pretty ideal. That That's definitely a, a reasonable outcome for the scenario, but it wasn't like that Bradley trade was a trade where they really, really came out of it looking great the way that they have with pretty much every other move that they have made in the last couple of years. So maybe their momentum kind of slowed from that perspective there. And then I love everything that Brooklyn did. The Russell trade was probably was one of my favorite deals of the offseason. They were super patient with waiting to cash in on Brooke Lopez as an asset. They didn't dump him for a first-round pick at the deadline, and it paid off so big because I couldn't have imagined Brooklyn being able to get an actual franchise cornerstone player within the next couple of years with the way that their asset stockpile was set up. And the fact that they were able to get Russell, who, like, as far as potential franchise cornerstones goes, is probably, like, at the bottom of the list of guys that are actually could be considered that – but he still looks like an incredibly talented player, and there's a lot of issues that maybe could be really worked out under this new in this new situation in Brooklyn. So I really love where Brooklyn went as far as just trying to get as many assets as they could using their cap space. I'm fine with them tying up their cap space for three years. You know, if the if the ownership is willing to go for three years of them hogging up their cap space to just take on these assets, I think it's worth it. So I wanted to talk about the Russell trade, too. That was actually something I was going to do in a future question, but we could talk about it now. What I liked about the process there is the idea of using basically a single trade as a consolidation move. And it wasn't consolidation like what I've wanted the Nuggets to do, where they're trading a bunch of pretty good players for one really good player. It was consolidation of a couple of different types of assets. So they had a lot of salary cap space because they got Mozgov's terrible contract in that deal. They also gave up Brook Lopez, who's a very good player on an expiring contract. And they gave up a late first-round pick. But they did all of that to get a guy with a high ceiling that you're really only going to acquire through that sort of a trade. I mean, there was no other way they were going to get anyone near with the promise of Russell and Russell's early in his rookie deal. It's like they have, you know, well, they're taking on all these assets, but then they're bringing on a really valuable player. They're paying relatively little to. So at the end of the day, they're spending their money for something that still is promising in the future, regardless of how it's distributed. So I think it's kind of a win-win situation and they end up getting a pick in their later moves. So they kind of end up balancing things out at the end of the day. And then they're left just sitting there with, you know, crab for all the issues that we are putting onto him now because of his price tag and the way that uh, we're looking at him through the tinted lenses of the price tag. He's still a solid, good, young rotation player that's better than almost anyone else they have on the roster and is relatively young. So I, I like what they're doing with that at the end of the day, especially because they're giving up essentially but literally nothing to get him. So doing whatever you can to get D'Angelo Russell and not lose anything that really hurts you long term, I think that worked out pretty much perfectly for them. The and they actually have line, a sense of direction now. Yeah, the bottom line is the Nets needed to take a swing. I mean, this is a team devoid of any true high ceiling assets. I mean, I like Karis Levert. Uh, they, you know, Isaiah Whitehead's an interesting prospect. 
Uh, Jared Allen now is an interesting big man prospect. Um, you know, they've got some interesting young pieces, but they they don't have anybody that you look at and go, that could be the tentpole guy for a franchise for a half decade or more. And even with the, the warts that he's developed in the first couple of years of his career, D'Angelo Russell has the potential to be that guy. And, and, and like Jared was saying, for them to give up only Brooke Lopez, who they've, you know, essentially been trying to trade for six years now um, in some form or another through different regimes. You know, while Brooke is a really good player, I think it makes a lot of sense for the Nets both now and in the future. I realized I never really answered the first question. So what I would say is the Nets and the Sixers unambiguously got better. I don't think there's much of an argument there. I think the Raptors got worse, and we'll talk about that in a second. But then the Celtics, I think they got better. I mean, it's not a huge difference. I think it's more of a regular season thing maybe in some ways in the playoffs unless Stevens really figures this out. And then with the Knicks, I think they'll probably be a little bit worse. And one of the big questions there, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later in the show, is just the mellow situation like if he's not on this team at any point and they trade him mostly for capitally for they buy him out then they're going to be a lot worse and that's not a bad thing for them necessarily it's just makes them worse but something i want to talk about at least a little bit was the raptors and so the raptors really what it sounds like and tim of course you can correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is really this is what happens when a team decides kind of in the middle of the process that they that ownership doesn't want to pay the luxury tax. And so maybe it was for the team at that level. And so these are the challenges that come into play when you make that adjustment after you already spent a bunch of money in the prior year. I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, I think MLS, so the Raptors are owned uh, by uh, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, which is their like the holding company for the Maple Leafs and I believe Toronto FC and some of the other sports franchises up in Toronto. And, and they've never been overly excited about ever paying the tax. I, I would say that what happened was more than anything was that, you know, I think if Damari Carroll was was the player that he was supposed to be um, when they signed him, if he had been healthy the last couple of years, I, I think they probably would have paid the tax because they would have been they would have had a higher ceiling. To me, I, I think they saw a chance to get off of his money. And they have a bunch of young guys on the roster, so they decided to to get cheaper and younger. I mean, the thing about Toronto, and I don't know if it's going to pay off, is that they've they've got a roster that's full of all these first and second and third year guys, right? Like you look at the Raptors, and obviously they've got Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan and Serge Ibaka now, who they signed for big money. So that so they've got all of those guys that are top end players, right? Well, then. You know, they've got all these guys that are under 22, under 24 years old. Norman Powell's 24, Pascal Siakam's 23, Fred Van Vliet's 23, Bruno Caboclo's 21, Jakob Pertl's 21, uh, OG Ananobu that just drafted is 20, Kalan Wright is 25. So they had all these young guys on the roster. So uh, I think they saw a chance to both save money and I think they believe that some of these young guys can play and play big minutes for them. And so they did it. But no, I I don't think that this was necessarily a change midstream. I mean, how how long have we been talking, Danny, about Jonas Valanciunas being on the block, right? And, and Demar Carroll being on the block. I mean, I think those guys have been sitting out there to be traded for a while. And my guess is that Masai Ujiri took the first deal he could get for one of them that made the most sense. And I think you know, from in their standpoint, I think they look at Jonas as a guy that can still help them, and Damari is mostly a sunk cost. And so getting off of Damari's money and keeping the more useful player, at least for now, I think to them seemed like the better long-term move. Not to mention that they're paying now C.J. Miles. 
Miles, who is probably more effective currently for the mid-level. So I, I think they turned over their rotation pretty well. They, they're at the point where they need to start clearing out veterans from the rotation to make room for these young guys. Like, I mean, Jakob Hurdle, assuming they don't trade Valanchunas, it's like they need to make room in the rotation for him to be getting those minutes. And I know that there's a concern about them not having enough power forwards because Siakam seems to be the only real power forward on the roster right now. But I don't think that's that terrible of a situation for them to be in right now because they've got a bunch of solid wings and they have a bunch of bigs where they can go with a bunch of lineups with two bigs. And if, if you know, when DeRozan and Lowry really have their scoring going, I think those lineups aren't necessarily terrible for them. So I'm just not clear on where Toronto is going from a playing style perspective. Um, which I think was kind of one of the main issues why they struggled in the uh, playoffs this year. Although, of course, Lowry getting hurt was the biggest issue. But I, I just Toronto, I feel like they should have looked at last season and look at it from the perspective of what we're currently doing isn't probably going to be enough for us to make it to the finals. So what can we do as far as the way we can figure this roster to change how we're playing? And I don't think we saw anything really evident in their offseason moves that showed them having a change in direction. But maybe just playing you know, their younger guys more will allow them to do that. Well, I think that part of the part of the thing you have to look at when you look at a team like Toronto is, you know, it's easy and it's become easier. You know, it's kind of become an in vogue thing to shout on the Internet that the team should blow their team up uh, <laughs> and, and start over. Um, and I, I'm not taking shots at anybody for saying that, but that has become kind of a popular thing. Like, oh, yeah, if you can't compete for a championship, you just start over. I don't necessarily I'm not dismissing anyone who thinks that way, but there's 30 NBA teams. There's only one that can win a championship. And if you look over the history of the NBA, there's generally four or five teams that have a real chance to win a championship every year. Um, So there's at minimum 20 to 25 teams that go into the season knowing they're not going to actually win a championship at the end of the day. And when you're not one of those teams at the top, there's different calculuses at play. Right. Toronto's a team that up until the last five years had basically had no success in the history of the franchise, had won one playoff series, which was 15 years ago. Uh, had, had, I don't think it ever even won a division title, which sounds stupid, but to a team that hadn't won anything, that, that meant a lot. And now the Raptors have made the conference finals for the first time ever. They've made the second round of the playoffs multiple times. Uh, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan have both re-signed. Re-signing two all-star players to stay in Toronto was a huge thing for the Raptors as a as kind of a statement of of where the franchise is and where it's headed in terms of a place that players are willing to play. So I I think that, you know, if you're Toronto and you you signed Serge Ibaka for three years and you signed Kyle Lauer for three years, basically I think what they decided was we're having, we're in the middle of a really good run. We could sign these guys, you know, because I think mostly, especially in Kyle Lauer's case of a a lack of real interest elsewhere, we could get these guys for three-year deals that aren't, that shouldn't cripple us long-term. And then when these deals wrap up, uh, which, you know, his deal should coincide with the end of DeMar DeRozan's deal. All of a sudden, then you're looking at a market where we have pretty much all of our money off the books and we can really dive in and go after some new players then. So uh, I think that the way to look at this Toronto offseason is that Masai Ujiri tried to, to split the difference between rebuilding and staying the course by, you know, like Jared said before, jettisoning, jettisoning some of these higher paid veterans, guys like Corey Joseph, who they turned into C.J. Miles because they already had two young point guards on the roster, and getting rid of Damari Carroll to both save money now and also to kind of begin this next phase of the franchise, which is, all right, we take Damari Carroll's money out, we give that to what Kyle Lowry was making before, and now we have all these young guys that we could fill in behind them, and hopefully they can step up and produce at the same level some of these veterans that left it. 
And I I just like the the general mission that Toronto is going with, which was just basically being successful consistently and enjoying that and not having to blow it up to win the title. I mean, there's there's a lot of teams that are stuck in the middle where blowing it up makes sense for them to just basically build from the ashes. But Toronto is close enough that uh, to the precipice that they don't need, or I guess the precipice of success that they don't need to do that, that just kind of retooling is, I think, the best move for them. Because, you know, if, I mean, for a lot of teams out there, just getting to the conference finals and hoping to get to the NBA finals, I think, is a great goal to have. You, you know, it's everybody, all 30, you know, the worst team in the league, there are players before the year are saying we're here to win a championship. But, like, you know, they, they know they're not trying to win the championship. But Toronto's a team that can at least get close enough where they're enjoying all the fruits of success of that. And it pays dividends long term for people looking at Toronto as being a viable destination for where they can build a contending culture. So I think what they're what the team and the franchise in general is going for right now is great. And I don't have anything really negative to take out of their offseason except that they didn't they weren't able to keep PJ Tucker, who I think is a the guy they really wanted to keep. But they were also able to get Kyle Lowry for a slightly below rate uh, max deal, which which is great. And that was to get a three-year deal with him was ideal because uh, it's not like the Chris Paul situation where you're worried about paying this guy until he's 55 years old. I mean, at his age to lock him into this three-year deal was pretty much perfect. So they're able to keep him and DeRozan on the same timeline and they're able to not be paying for probably, you know, down years in the guy's uh, career. It's, I think they manage it fairly well. The other part of this that's important to consider, and and sometimes to kind of go to Tim's point, people don't, is it's actually pretty hard to get all the way to the bottom when you were as good as the Raptors are. And have, picking like 6th or 8th or 10th doesn't mean enough. You know, like that's not going to get you those players that are going to be the centerpieces of, of a potential championship team. You really need to be one of the two or three worst teams in the NBA or have a pick of one of the two or three worst teams in the NBA in order to get there. And it was unrealistic for the Raptors to, to make that move. So it's totally, even. it would be defensible anyway, but it's even more defensible to just kind of run it out. And I think what I like about what Majuri did was that they weren't committing, like going whole hog into this super expensive team that they kind of knew what it was going to be, that they were able to cut costs and they'll be a little bit worse, but I don't think they'll be worse in a way that really matters for what they're going for. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely, that's, that's definitely true. So the, the next point and I already gave mine with the D'Angelo Russell trade but there are still a couple we can talk about was a move like a a draft pick a trade a signing that stood out to you for whatever reason from these five teams I mean to me it's the it's the Jason Tatum Markel Fultz trade and I mean yes you know I I remember I made a comment that you know the Celtics are are basically betting on Jason Tatum being better than Markel Fultz and I remember our friend Kevin Pelton at the time, who I just recorded a home podcast with a little while ago. Uh, I remember at the time he said, well, you have to also factor in that they're getting another first round pick in the deal, too. So it's really those two guys. And that is true that the Celtics got another pick in that trade. But the Celtics can't crow about the other pick in that trade when they have jumped around and said that they were going to take Jason Tatum no matter what. And they were so smart to make this trade because they were going to take Jason Tatum regardless. (laughs) And so, you know, and I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, Danny Age has done a terrific job. But you, you can't have your cake and eat it, too, right? You can't say that Jason Tatum was the best player in the draft, and so we were going to take him no matter what, and say, well, yeah, but we also get to grade this trade on Jason Tatum and whoever else we get. To me, it's this trade, unless the other player becomes a megastar, this trade is Jason Tatum versus Marco Fultz. And that, the fact that those two guys are in the same division and the fact that, to me, 
Markel Fultz is a, a, a significantly better prospect and I think was a, a perfect fit, as I know you agree, Danny, with what the Sixers needed. I, I just think that is a fascinating challenge trade and the kind of trade that really is something that we could be looking at for a long time, no matter basically no matter how it plays out, because it's just very fascinating that, A, you have a trade that happens like that with a first, third pick swap in a draft, and B, where you have the two teams playing in the same division and two teams that should be good for a while. Uh, it really it really just makes for what I think is going to be a fascinating next few years to see how it shakes out and which team comes out on top. Yeah, I think Danny Ainge was trying to uh, recreate the Kevin McHale trade from 35 years ago or so, however long <laughs> it's been. But it's, it was almost the same thing. They traded the number one pick, which was Joe Barry Carroll for Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale at the, at the third pick. I mean, part of the issue was they didn't get, and you know, they didn't get like a basically an all-star player in this. They got a future pick, which people at the time expected that Laker slash Kings pick to be a really good pick, but. We have no idea where it's going to convey. And who knows, two years from now, Sacramento, I mean, they're riding the ship there and they might be later lottery team and you might not get an incredibly valuable pick. I think for whatever metrics the Celtics are using for evaluating the value of picks, they probably they probably got great value where they probably added overall value. But splitting overall value between two players as opposed to one player. I think there's kind of a push and pull there between like you want to have the great player rather than two good players usually, Um, especially in their situation where they already have so much talent. And like Jalen Brown is looking like a really good prospect who has a lot of who has all star potential. And I mean, forget about like the exciting dunks and all that stuff. He has a he looks like he could have a pretty complete game, although he has to really he has to learn how to dribble through traffic without turning the ball over. But, you know, he's in the second year, so (laughs) that comes eventually. But the Celtic, it wasn't like the Celtics were desperate to get two more guys. So I look at this. So, like, for one, I don't quite understand why they made the trade unless they really – I don't don't believe that they had Jason Tatum number one. I think they had probably – Fultz and Tatum on the same tier, close enough to each other that the difference was ne- negligible enough for them to make the deal. Sad so, disagree, actually. I, I think you only make that trade if you have Jason Tatum number one on your board. Honestly, like I, I think, I, I don't think. I think if you look at at most NBA teams, if you get a chance to take the number one pick in the draft, you generally are, are thinking you're getting a, a superstar, right? So for you to trade out of that, that pick for just one other pick. To me, I mean, it does really make me – it does feel like they knew that they were going to get their number one guy with the third pick and that they were comfortable doing that. And that's why – that's what makes it such a fascinating trade to me because if you're if you're trading out of the number one spot, even to go to third, if you look over the course of history, the drop-off is pretty significant in value-added, right, from oh, – like yeah. as you go down pick by pick. So, like, you knew that Lonzo Ball was going to the Lakers – and if you know Marco Fultz is going first, then you know you're getting your guy with the third pick. So you take an extra first and you move down two spots. And that's what makes it so fascinating to me because they really do seem to have felt that they got the top pick in the draft, which is why if Jason Tatum isn't better than Markel Fultz and Markel Fultz becomes a eight-time All-Star with the Sixers and Jason Tatum's a good player or a, you know, a, a couple-time All-Star with the Celtics, that's going to be something that people in Boston are going to be you know pulling their hair out about for a really long time. Well, and I- if it's the other way around, vice versa, they'll be – celebrating it too the and the other part that i've been fixated on and i've talked about this on dunked on a few times is that this fundamentally changes the way that the celtics approach isaiah thomas moving forward because they had an opportunity to draft somebody who was a special talent at the same position so that can be risky you know you have that idea and isaiah is going to be a free agent in 2018 but it just so happened due to serendipity that 
the player you were drafting had a, whether it was big or not, they had a pre-existing relationship with Isaiah Thomas. They went to the same college, and Isaiah seemed cool with it. And so while it is technically possible, the Spacelltics still have a, a boatload of assets. As much as this is a bet on Jason Tatum and against Markel Fultz, it is also a bet on Isaiah Thomas because it is so much harder now to get another guy. They don't have cap space anymore, and they have these two picks, but do you really want to draft somebody at this point who's going to you know, be in the mix there as well? It also feels like there might be a bet on cap on the the cap and new cap environment in the league. And I, I mean, I've talked about this on a couple of podcasts, but uh, I really think that you could see Isaiah Thomas in a very similar situation to the one Kyle Lowry was in this summer, yep. next summer. That does not people love to think that I have some vendetta against Isaiah Thomas. I do not. Uh, he is a terrific player. He had a terrific year. He's probably going to have another great year, uh, but his numbers will not be as good next season, almost certainly. Um, given the fact that they now the, the Celtics now have another all-star on their team uh, and a scoring wing who's going to need the ball in his hands a lot. I mean, Gord Hayward is not going to be standing around, you know, shooting spot-up three-pointers. I mean, it's not how it's going to work. I mean, he's going to have the ball a lot. So Isaiah's numbers are going to come down a little bit. And if you just look around the league, A, find the teams that need a point guard. Because remember this summer, part of the reason that Kyle's market got suppressed to the point where he really didn't have another offer, is which is why he ended up with that three-year deal, is basically every team that needed a point guard drafted a point guard this year. You know, Sacramento drafted one, Dallas drafted one, the Knicks drafted one, the Sixers obviously drafted one with Markel Fultz. So yeah, maybe one or two of those guys will start to dip a little bit, but generally none of those teams are going to be ready to punt on those guys after a year. And if you look around the league, you know, there, there's just not a lot of spots where you go, there's an obvious place where a team needs a point guard that Isaiah can go play. So you know, I, I just I really look at it, and uh, you know, I think Zach I, I think Zach Lowe had said a couple weeks ago that he you know he wondered if Isaiah might end up around twenty twenty five a year next year. I I wouldn't be surprised if that happened because I, I just think it's going to be very difficult for him to find any kind of leverage to get the kind of max deal he's looking for, um, both because of the kind of unique fit that he provides as a smaller guy who's terrible on defense, and also the fact that there just aren't a lot of teams that I think are going to be interested in paying 25 or $30 million a year for his services next summer. So I'll try to unpack all that. So I, th- I don't think there's anything I disagreed with in everything you guys just said. As far as the number on Isaiah, I think 25 is that golden number that Boston is shooting for. I think they would rather commit less years. I think they're looking at a potential deal with Isaiah is less guaranteed years out of their control because of the concern at that at his size, you know, he could fall off quickly when he reaches his early thirties. Um, you know, kind of like how like Allen Iverson did. He's a, he's a high flying acrobatic player who hits the ground a ton and there's a ton of impact injury risk. He had his hip tear landing from one of those high flying layups uh, back in March. There, there's been a lot of kind of mystery around his hip tear. He just said, well, uh, and that's well, and that's a good point too. I don't mean to cut yeah. you off, but like people have like completely ignored this hip injury, right? Like, I mean, it's a, it's a serious, it's, it's a, a serious a, issue. Yeah. It's a big injury. Like I hope he comes back fine. And I mean, he's a, it's not like he's 36, so he probably will come back fine, but it's, it's by no means a certain thing. I mean, I think Wilson Chandler, I want to say that was the injury that kept Wilson Chandler out for a season, right? I, Danny might remember that better than me. I think, I mean, hip, hip injuries are no joke. 
Yeah, it's like, and I mean, this one, it's it, it was kind. Of, it seemed like it was the way it was described that it was kind of like a, almost like a stress injury, and in that it was basically he has a he has basically a like um, a piece of bone sticking out of his hip, and it causes like a, it slowly tears the labrum. So it seems like it was kind of like slowly tearing it away and then it eventually just like tore to the point that it was considered like an actual like significant medical tear. Um, so they let it heal instead of doing surgery to shave off the bone that was causing the issue. So it's not clear what the risk is in the future. But he just said that he's going to be ready for the start of the season. But like it's he he is his whole game is like high torque bouncing around changing direction super fast stuff like that so it's like it we're comp- everybody on the outside is completely in the dark as to how much he's going to be able to do that how much I mean he he has a high elevation jump shot that allows him to be a deadly shooter how much elevation is he going to have on a shot how much is he going to be able to get in the air to do all the acrobatic layups that he does so we don't know how he's going to be playing what we do know is that. Um, they really needed someone else to be a ball handler to allow him to function off the ball because one, it's incredibly taxing when he is the way that he runs the offense is incredibly physically taxing. Although he's always been he's always been in great shape, so he's always actually been able to really kind of elevate at the end of the games. But obviously, the long term injury concern comes into play there. But he is incredible. He became uh, he went from being like decent off the ball to like great. I would say like good to borderline great off the ball last year and they want to be able to utilize that more so that's why i thought it made so much sense for them to draft markel fultz because they would kind of complement each other perfectly offensively but obviously defensively would be a major concern um but they can still do a decent amount of that with gordon hayward at least but long term he's going to need to be able to mix it up on ball as much to be able to extend his career so them building towards that, I think, allows him to be more valuable as time goes on. But they don't want to be locked in for max money when he turns 32 and injury risk is a big issue. So I see them. I mean, the Lowry, I think they were really excited when they saw the Lowry deal because they looked at that as that they can point to that when negotiating with Isaiah as a template for his deal as opposed to a four year max. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. Jared, did you have another move that you wanted to talk about? Because there's one more that I feel like we have to discuss. Uh, we haven't talked about Tim Hardaway. That signing. was the one um, I, I felt like we had to do. And I mean, the Hardaway, there, there are a bunch of different components of it that are fascinating. One being, of course, that he was traded away from the team that then signed him to this lucrative <laughs> offer, though that was the... That was kind of a different regime. It's very confusing with the Knicks. Probably let Tim uh, analyze and contextualize that part of it. But I think the biggest part of it was just they paid him way too much money. And he doesn't fill any of the traditional roles for a really good player. There didn't seem to be that kind of a market for him. There was certainly a market for him, but not that kind of a market for him. And the Knicks, broadly speaking, other than being a train wreck, are a team that could use their cap space. They could come from a position of strength, kind of like the Lakers are approaching it, it this coming year, though the Lakers have better surrounding talent now than the Knicks do now. Yeah, I mean, this is a very classic example of a front office being led by Steve Mills. You know, one of the early issues with between Steve and Phil Jackson was that Steve is a was a fan of Tim Hardaway and Phil was not and, and Tim Hardaway got you know dealt pretty early on in Phil's tenure. If you look at this situation, it's pretty clear that here's Steve Mills uh, trying to prove to James Dolan that he should be the guy running this team long term, and he comes into the job and you know is trying to you know there's this is I think this is right after you know the David Griffin stuff happens and you know 
he decides he needs to make a splash and go get a guy. And yeah, Tim Hardaway maybe can develop into an average starting shooting guard. I am skeptical of that, to put it mildly. I think he's a rotation player, but not much more than that. And this this contract reminds me a lot of the one Alan Crabb signed a year ago where Yes, Tim Hardaway is a useful player that can help you. No, he's not worth the money you just got. You just paid him. And now you have this player who is a useful player, but really isn't going to help you win a lot and is going to cost you a significant amount, both in terms of dollars and in future years, the opportunity cost of getting other players, just as the Knicks have run themselves into a problem with doing that with uh, Courtney Lee and Joakim Noah. I mean, now that now they just have a roster. I mean, they were paying those three guys. Uh, I want to say somewhere between forty-five and fifty-five million dollars the next few years, and it's just hard to see how they're going to be able to build a competitive team when you're paying those three guys that much of a percentage of your salary cap. Yeah, I think the thing that hurts about it is that because they're carrying what is probably dead money on Joe Keem, that they have to be really careful about how they're spending their money so that they can continue to keep cap space available and then they they're not like who were they ron baker add him to the list who were they bidding against on ron baker they he's a minimum player and he somehow got more than that i don't understand how that happened well then again, he more did, than that he got a player option too i mean that, that yeah, was exactly. that was that was a sign that from the moment it started to leak out which was even before july 1st happened that a lot of people were just very confused about you know when that at that point i think it was a two-year nine million dollar deal and i don't think people even then knew it was a player option I mean, then it really was just like it just didn't make a lot of sense. And I mean, you, you almost, you almost, I mean, now I, I would almost think that they're going to go into the season with him as their starting point guard, even over Frank Nilakina. I mean, it, it should be a pretty rough year for the Knicks. It should be a pretty rough year. But then again, I mean, we might get into this later. You know, you were kind of talking about this before, Danny. I don't think they're going to be able to trade Carmelo Anthony. And if you have Carmelo and Porzingis on your team, even if you don't have much at point guard and you don't really have a ton around them, I still think they're probably going to win enough games that they're going to be in the wrong part of that lottery discussion, and they're going to be right in the kind of place they don't need to be, which is in that 8 to 12 range again, instead of the 1 to 4 range where they can get the kind of difference-making player to go next to Porzingis that they really need. And there's so many guys at the top of the draft next year that would be like ideal to put next to Porzingis that then they, they need they want to get at the top of this draft so badly. The thing that bothered me the most about the Hardaway deal was I think it was Steve Mills at the press conference saying that he was justifying the price they paid, saying that they paid starting shooting guard money for him. But that that's not really a thing. It's basically how what is his market and who are you bidding against and are you winning that bid? And I just don't see how anybody was bidding anything close to that. So the market for him, it didn't seem there's any justification for considering the market for him to be near what he actually got paid. Right. Well, the way the Knicks, I mean, what he was saying essentially is that in defending their decision was that they looked at the market and the average salary for a starting shooting guard is around $17 million, which it is. It's like 16 or $17 million. So they offered him a deal commiserate with that because they think he can turn into an above average starting shooting guard. Uh, to your point, I, I just, A, I don't, I just don't really see that happening. So, I mean, yeah, they, they, they bid high enough that they were going to get the guy they wanted, which is great, but now you have the guy. And that, that was the thing about the Nets trade that I just didn't really like and that, you know, kind of along the same lines. I thought they dodged a bullet last year when they when they got out of the contract, when they, they signed him to what I thought was a ridiculous offer sheet. And then, yes, getting rid of Andrew Nicholson may, turns him, you know, theoretically on your books into a $12 million player instead. But if you're going to save Portland $60 million in a trade, I, I just think you've got to get 
a pick out of that deal just to balance things out and to give you some opportunity to make up some of the opportunity costs that you're losing by using your cap space for the next three summers. And, and for the Knicks, again, it goes back to what I said before, like, yeah, maybe he can become an average shooting guard. And in that case, the, the contract they gave him is going to end up being okay. But I think he's got a very long way to go to doing that. I don't think it's going to happen. And now you're in a situation where even if he does manage to get there, you have so many other holes you have to fill that it's almost not going to matter because by the time he prices out of that contract, you're still not going to build the kind of team around him that you're going to want to be part of it anyway. And remember, they also gave him a player option. So in case this really works, he's just going to opt out and then either squeeze them for more money or leave. If you're going to overpay a guy, don't give them that kind of leverage. And that's sort of the analogy. And I think this is the parallel you're making with the Nets. The Hawks weren't matching that offer at four for 72 with an option or without an option. And he was going to sign that offer at four for 72 with or without the option. And that what you were talking about with the Nets is a very good point. And the other big team that I criticize for this is the Bulls when they did the McDermott Taj Gibson trade. When you're giving the other team a bunch of stuff, you don't need to give them a second round pick on top of that. You have to understand the quality of you of the trade from both perspectives. Because if you don't, then you're just not you're not doing yourselves any favors. And I firmly believe that there are many mutually beneficial trades in the NBA. But you have to understand when you have leverage and when you don't. And you 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 get the most out of it when you can. And they didn't. The Nets didn't really do that to me in that trade. And the Knicks basically never do that. But can't we, argue with that. Yeah, we can the Knicks, argue with that. The Knicks are pretty inept when it comes to squeezing all the juice they can out of the deal. Before we move on, lots of other topics to discuss with the Atlantic Division. I want to tell you all about a sponsor I'm thrilled to have back, Audible. Audible has been something that I have used for years now, and there are a lot of different ways that you can enjoy it. I'm personally partial to a lot of the nonfiction stuff that's on there, particularly audiobooks that are read by the people who who experience it, you know, the people who wrote the book. Bruce Springsteen's in particular is one. I, I listened to that for a long time, really enjoyed it. But if you're interested in learning history, uh, there's a mythology one that's sitting in my queue right now that I'm excited to listen to at some point in the near future, probably on my trip. And then also science fiction and, and all sorts of other things in, in that realm of it. And so really whatever you're interested in, in terms of audio content, and it is more than audiobooks as well. They have some really great comedy and a lot of other things too. You can check out Audible. And what has impressed me maybe more than anything else is just that whatever you're kind of feeling like, they have something in that and something that's really high quality. And also, I've found that the reviews are incredibly helpful. There are some sites where they're not, but people go into depth and the amount of investment that you have in an audiobook is is significant. And so people take the time and, and really get into it. And so I found that the ones that were well-reviewed were really well done and they were worth that time. I've been thrilled with everything really that I've gotten with Audible. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can go to audible.com slash real GM and you can get a 30 day trial, which comes with a free audiobook. So you can do a little bit of digging for yourself, find something that fits in with it and you can check it out. And for those of you who have a Kindle or something like that, you can also do whisper sync so you can, it can keep track of where you are, which is fantastic. I'm really an audio only person with audible, but I know that people who do those sorts of transfers really do enjoy that. So it's something that you can check out. And again, it's audible.com slash real GM, just like this podcast, just like the site I've written for forever. And you can get a 30 day free trial and a free audiobook with it. So definitely check it out. 
so we'll move on to the to the, the I think the last two offseason review questions we'll do pretty quickly. And the next one that I always do is the best newcomer to their team. So that can be a signing or a draft pick. And we're going to exclude Gordon Hayward because I think we could we would all say Gordon Hayward in about ten seconds. So and who who guys who you think is the best newcomer? You can go near term, you can go long term, whatever makes you happy. I'll start out with uh, JJ Redick on Philly. Just seeing Philly kind of kind of just everything kind of coming to fruition there, and then just getting the perfect veteran presence to have in there, who is someone that really like they've gone from like kind of like burning down the civilization, rebuilding out of the ashes, and now like putting the pillars of society in place and having. The guy that one gives you that specific need you want, which is having a really good shooter to give you that spacing. But to have someone who brings the leadership off the court to just have the consistent work ethic and the responsibility and just kind of the general veteran savvy that just comes along with just carrying yourself out in a professional manner, I think – Brett Brown has someone who can be a real leader for this team and getting the young guys to really work hard and develop themselves and paying Reddick the amount that they're paying him and also having the flexibility of it being a one-year deal where they can then reset out of that next offseason. But Reddick will fulfill what they're paying him as much off the court as on the court. And it just it's kind of a match made in heaven. Yeah, and I, I to me, it's false. I mean, I, all those are good points about Reddick, but uh, you know, Sam Hinkie accumulated all these assets in Philly because you not only want as many bites at the apple as you can, but you also want to be able to make a move when it presents itself to get a dominant player. And when you, you combine the fit uh, that Fultz has with their core and and just I think his talent level, which I think is through the roof, um, I, I just love that move for them. And, you know, we've talked about Russell, we've talked about Tatum. I think they're both going to be fine and, and, and they're going to be. I think there'll be nice additions to their teams, but I just thought the the, the boldness of the Fultz move to go get that guy and and, fi- and identify the piece you knew you needed to add to your team and go get it. To me, that makes that the the top move for me. Actually, I'll, I'll quickly caveat my answer. I think I answered that from like the one I enjoyed the most. But as far as who impacts their team the most out of anyone, I would say from a Philly perspective, more excited about adding Fultz than a Boston perspective about adding Hayward. I think Fultz is does that much for that team to elevate where their ceiling is even more so than what Hayward is doing for Boston. Kind of between those two different takes that Reddick will provide the most value, assuming he stays healthy this season, but that Fultz is Fultz is yeah. kind of a, a fundamentally the, transfer. The Reddick the Redick move is a great move, too. Yeah, I, and, and getting him for one year, I mean, that opens the door for them to go in a lot of different directions next year, and I think that that openness could work for them. It might not, but there aren't going to be that many teams with space, so you might as well... Go after it. And then the next question is the rookie that you're most excited to see. I'll start with this one and just say Markel Fultz. There are a lot of really exciting rookies in this class, including some guys in the second round. I'm a little bit mad that Jonah Bolden isn't going to be around this year. But, I mean, Markel Fultz just has that sky-high potential. And even more so, I would probably have Simmons second and Tatum third. But there are just a ton of guys that I'm excited for in this division. Yeah, I mean, if you count you, if you count Simmons, obviously he'll be interesting. Uh, Tatum will be interesting. Fultz will obviously be interesting. I, I'm curious to see Jared Allen. He didn't play in summer league, but he he's got an intriguing skill set, and and you know playing under Kenny Atkinson is a really good developmental coach. Um, he's he's going to have a chance to develop there. Uh, I'm also interested to see how Frank Nilakina looks in New York. I, I like him. I mean, he may not end up being Dennis Smith, who I would have picked ahead of him, but. But I, I think he has a chance to be a very good player. You know, if he becomes George Hill, which is from the little bit I've seen of him on tape, 
uh, I think is an interesting comp. I mean, if he can if he can become a George Hill type player, that's a very good player. So I, I that would that would work out pretty well. And even you know, an OG Ananobi is a guy that I, I think could be really intriguing. He obviously blew his knee out last year. We'll see if he gets healthy. But I, I think the Atlantic Division is is unique in that you can there, there's at least one guy in every team that I think from a rookie standpoint is going to be really interesting to watch next season. Which you know you can't always say. And part of that's because there's a couple awful teams in the division and. Part of it's also because one one team's had a top five pick a bunch of years in a row, but it, it does provide you know a lot of interesting uh, high upside young talent for for fans to watch. I was just going to say I'm really excited to see the suits that OG and Anobi wears this year, um, <laughs> but I'm more excited to watch Ben Simmons play than Tatum or Fultz. So while I think Fultz probably has the most upside of those uh, between him and Simmons, Simmons is going to be just so fascinating to watch. I love. I love everything about the way that he plays the game, even though there's some major flaws there. But getting to see the way that Philly is utilizing him, I think, is the most intriguing of all the rookies that are going to be out there. And also, I'm actually really curious to see what, I guess, what kind of free reign Frank has in New York. Because I feel like New York is so devoid of really usable talent that he may because he's a guy that feels like he's like a kind of like a like a, a system player who can really excel because i mean george hills i think the the best comparison for him obviously which everybody's going with but i guess this year in new york it's like what do they have to lose by trying to push him into all sorts of different roles and see where he can really excel so they i hope they get kind of experimental with them and try to bring things out of them that we haven't really scouted them before yet so that could be a, an interesting wrinkle there this is also an opportunity for him to play more off-ball. And so I watched a lot of footage of Frank, and what I was most intrigued by is that he actually fits beautifully at this point in his career as a straight off-ball guy. You know, I, I have this kind of idea in my head that he might actually be a two-guard eventually. And that works playing point guard if you have guys like Carmelo Anthony there. Like, he can play off Melo in a way that is very good for his long-term development because I think you want the ball in his hands more when he's young to see if he can actually do it. But you get that little tester of probably a couple months, how they try to trade Melo and can't, of just trying it out and seeing, you know, seeing him a little bit more. And then whenever they figure out what the hell's going on there, then they resolve that. Then Frank gets the ball in his hands and you can just file that away saying, okay, he's still too young now to really get a representative sample here. But how did he look? How did that work? Or just continue to try to run the triangle with him, Melo, and Kristaps and see if it actually works. I mean, they have the... They have the right pieces in place to try to pull it off. I mean, going back to the, I guess, the mistakes and BS of the offseason, like just having making that pick as a fill pick and then moving and then getting rid of him like a couple of weeks later is still one of the most mind boggling things that I've seen from an NBA front office management perspective in my time covering the NBA. But hey, at least they at least they have something to work with in the future. Well, and also remember that they had picked up a mutual option worth $24 million for Phil a couple of weeks before. You know, I and, and that's another part of this. While I know money is monopoly money to James Dolan, that's still insane from a team standpoint. Monopoly money is technically finite. It is. There's only so much paper in the world. But let's move on to the season preview part of it. And I actually think this is going to be a little bit more straightforward for the Atlantic than a lot of the other divisions. But the way this always starts is with ranking the teams one to five. I usually use regular season record, but if you want to use a different criteria, just explain it and go with it. Uh, I'll go with, uh, I mean, you could do one through five or you could do tiers, but Boston, Toronto, Philly, New York, Brooklyn would be the order for me. But I look at it for tiers. It's basically... Teams that I could see going to the conference finals in Boston and Toronto, team that could fight for the playoffs in Philly, and then 
teams that are pretty much at the bottom of the barrel in New York and Brooklyn. I'm honestly, I mean, if, if Melo gets dumped for nothing, I'm not even sure who's better between the two New York teams, honestly. Uh, yeah, I think Boston and Toronto in order easy. I actually think Brooklyn could end up third in the division. Um, I, I think Philly, Philly is probably the hardest team to reject in the entire league. Uh, they could be, I think, the worst team in the league. Uh, they also could win 45 games or so and make the playoffs. I mean, basically their entire season comes down to can Joel Embiid get on the court and play, right? And can and how many minutes can he play? I mean, the guy played 700 minutes last year. Can he play twice that many? I mean, if he could do that, they'd probably win 30, 35 games. If he could play three times that many, if he can play 2,000 minutes, you know, then you're probably talking about a team that could win 45 games and make the playoffs. But it's just impossible to know how his body's going to hold up and – and how that is going to go, which makes them a really hard team for me to try to to sit and look at and analyze and see, all right, well, this is how many games they can actually win this year. That's why, to me, I, I think the Nets are going to be pretty significantly better. I know they lost Brook Lopez, but they were pretty good whenever Jeremy Lin was healthy last year. At least they were at least they were competitive. And uh, they've got a lot of interesting young guys. The guys that they added, Mozgov and Carroll, I think, can at least give them production. And and the other thing, too, is that we just have no idea what's going to happen with the Knicks. They could move on from Carmelo Anthony. There could be, even if they don't, there could be drama there. We have no idea what's going on with Chris Porzingis. Are they going to keep Jeff Hornacek around? Do they try to just sell guys off or whatever they can get? I mean, it is kind of impossible to know. So, I mean, I think the top two teams here are pretty set. And after that, I honestly think that the, the Sixers, Nets, and, and Knicks could finish in any order because they're – there, there's just a lot of variables at play for all those teams. And the other thing to remember, too, is that the Nets are going to have no incentive to lose, uh, given that their pick is in is in Boston's hands for one more year. So unlike a lot of these teams at the bottom of the East and the bottom of the league in general that are going to be desperately trying to improve their, their lottery position at the end of the season, the Nets are probably just going to be able to keep playing right through the end of the year. So that could end up seeing them get a few more wins than people think just because they're not actively trying to lose like a lot of other teams will be. And also along those same lines, they're in the right position to just kind of push it a little bit because they're just sitting there and just kind of doing their own thing. They're just going to try to build a culture. And a lot of how that is, is just by trying, by running, maybe not through the finish line, but through awfully close to it. Whereas the Knicks, you know, if the season falls apart, it's not a surprise. They can do that. They have, you know, they have not a new, like, they have an overhauled front office, not an entirely new one because of all the holdovers. And so the structural incentives are very different for them. And with the with the Nets, they're just gonna. I think they're just gonna keep pushing it. And they have a lot of guys on their team. They have deficiencies, but they have a lot of guys that I could see really embracing that towards the end of the year. And we don't have the schedule; it's not released at this point. But if they have a lot of teams in April that are just not that are that are like are just past that point, whether it's the Knicks or basically half the Eastern Conference or those teams at the bottom of the West, if that's just who they get at the end, I could see them winning. Mm-hmm half or more than half of their April games and just completely screwing the Celtics. And as their fans are just ripping their hair out as the Celtics are actually winning a lot of games themselves. I think that would be the most, the the most hilariously ironic ending to the season, which Brooklyn did last year, by the way. And I think they're even better equipped to do it again this year. And then that of course ties to the whole discussion of the Celtics leaving things to chance in the future and keep pushing the buck that they're beholden to fate, whichever direction it tends to fall for them. But so New York, I wouldn't be surprised to see them win like one game in April this year. They seem like they're ripe for that kind of end to the season. And Brooklyn yeah, they could the be they way. could be a total they could be a total train wreck. Well, I mean yeah. it's, it's really and they could win thirty five games too. That's the thing. Like they could if they just hang on to Carmelo, 
like him and Porzingis is, is probably a good enough combination, even with all their other troubles to win 30, 35 games, given there's going to be some truly wretched teams. But again, like I think, you know, both them and both them and Philly have the potential to be all over the place because if Philly has injuries or if they start selling guys off, they could lose a ton of games and and be back down at the top well, of the lottery. And, and Philly has their own pick, so they don't have the same incentives in place that some of these other teams right. do. So they right. can, you know, if they if they fall off, they can fall off hard. And they have, you know, they I'm sure they want to look good for free agents, but you reach a certain point where the marginal benefit is really low. Well, and if they don't have Joel Embiid, they're just not going to be good. Right. Yeah, like, I mean, remember, their three best players are, are two guys that haven't played a single game in the league yet. And Joel Embiid has played 31. So, I mean, it, it's not often that you look at a young team like that and, and they're going to be good. I mean, look at I mean, I was obviously wrong in Minnesota last year, but Minnesota had, I think, a pretty significantly higher talent level and a much more certain health standpoint. And they were still a team that people thought, like, I, I thought they'd win 50 games, so I was say on the high end, but there were a lot of people who thought they were going to win 45 games, and they won 29. So, you know, yes, I think that Philly's wildly talented, and I love the direction the franchise is going in, but if they win 25 games again this year, it, it's not going to surprise me because you have to get started, and getting started is hard, and it could, it could take at least a year longer than people think it's going to. I think at least Philly, at least Philly is in a win-win situation where they're either like good and they, like it's either Embiid stays healthy because like for one we have, I don't think there's anyone in the world that has any idea how many games to expect Joel Embiid to play somewhere between one game and 82 games this year and for them you know if they fall back in the lottery then that's great they just have another high lottery pick and there's no expectation right now of them winning this year so as far as expectations and what their fan base and what their front office and staff is satisfied with there's really no downside except for all their players being hurt again it's a pretty nice position to be in so then the next question and i think this is easier here than in most divisions is just how many teams from the atlantic make the playoffs the two and a half boston and toronto are locks and then philly it's will joe how many games does joel Embiid play so it's uh go ahead no i was just gonna say the answer is two i mean i think this is what i mean like I, i think I love the Sixers. I think if they, for them to make the playoffs, I think you have to assume Joel Embiid is going to play 75 games. And I just don't know how, I don't know how anybody can, can look at him and realistically expect that. I mean, because if, if he plays, even if, let's say he plays 62 games, which would be twice as many as he played last year and twice as many as he's ever played, then you're still not going to have your best player for a, a quarter of your games. And the games that he doesn't play in, they're probably going to win 20% of the time. So because you, you basically got, you know, Simmons and and Fultz and then a bunch of nice complimentary players. But you don't win in the NBA with rookies. So I, to me, I just I, I don't see how they they make the playoffs unless Embiid can give them over 70 games. And I just as much as I would love to see that, I don't even think Philly will let him play that many games if he is healthy all year. I, I mean, my guess is he I don't know this. I'm not reporting it. I'm guessing he's probably not going to play in back-to-backs again. I don't know why they would risk it. So that's already probably 10 or 15 games off the top before you take into, any, into account any other injuries you might have. So, And you know they're going to be I cautious just, with any injuries that do come. Yeah, anything that happens, they're going to – I mean, because remember, again, they have to – like his contract is up after next season. He'll be restricted free agent. If he's healthy, he'll be there. I'm sure he'll be there long-term. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff at play here. So that's why, to me, I think that – Anybody projecting Philly's going to make the playoffs, I think, is is jumping the gun a little bit 
And let's see them get to 30, 35 wins. And let's have Joel get through the season healthy first. And then the following year, then we can really start to look at them. Maybe if they get a guy in free agency and go, all right, now that Simmons has got a year under his belt and Fultz has got a year under his belt and Embiid has been able to stay healthy and we had a free agent. Now we're talking about a team that can really take a step forward. This is I mean, this is really going to piss off the people who don't understand probabilities, but I'm guessing that not many of them listen to this podcast. But I have the Sixers as one of the eight best teams in the Eastern Conference, but I also think they have a, a meaningfully below 50% chance of making the playoffs because there is yeah. just this army, there's just this army of teams that probably have between a 20 and 40, 45% chance of making the playoffs because other than the top four or five teams, nobody's good. So like a bunch of these teams have a chance. I think the Sixers are among the best of those teams, but they are far, far, far from a lock or even likely to make the playoffs. Yeah, from a talent level standpoint, there's no doubt that Philly has a lot of talent. No doubt. There, if, you, if you're just going by, pick the roster and say, for this season, I'd like to have this team. If I could just have that roster for this year, setting everything else aside, you're picking Philly ahead of a lot of teams even this year. If you, if you could know the guys are going to be healthy. But they're so young and they have so many questions that, that putting them in the playoffs – I just think it's just a bridge too far for me, at least right now. And I sure hope I'm wrong because that means that Joel Embiid is healthy and played a whole season. And as a writer who writes about the NBA, I want Joel Embiid to play for 20 years because that guy is both so much fun to watch and is one of the best personalities the league has seen in forever. So I'm certainly rooting for that to work out that way. So I'm looking at the number for Embiid for them to make the play. So I guess first off, I think they need to get into the high 30s and wins to make the playoffs because, like Danny is saying, there's there's like five teams that have a decent chance of grabbing the eighth seed with a well below 500 record probably. And then I think Embiid needs to play about 60 games or so for them to get close to that mark because they he played at such an elite level while he was in last year. I still can't believe how good he was. But um, that team just flows so much better on offense. And then they have that defensive stopgap when he's in there that they're I think they play like a like an I would expect them this year carrying over, I think, the important parts of their core from last year and then really approving upon you know, replacing Gerald Henderson with J.J. Redick, which I think is a pretty huge upgrade, stuff like that. Uh, big shot Bob Covington, who will be the forever unsung hero in Philadelphia until he, I guess, probably eventually gets big money somewhere outside of Philadelphia. But he's going to be a year better. The uh, incarcerated Rashawn Holmes might finally be freed a little bit more this year, I hope. Uh, but I like their core as with Embiid while he's on the floor, I think at the caliber in the Eastern Conference of like a team in the low 40 win range. So I do think they have a pretty legitimate shot at nabbing that eight seed if Embiid is getting 60 games or so. But I wish I wish we could have some certainty of seeing more Joel Embiid because I think everybody agrees that he's one of the most exciting players that we've seen in this era. I mean, he's just incredible to watch. And it's robbing everybody that cares about the NBA. It's robbing us of an opportunity to see a truly great player. And and that's a point that I think we should focus on a little bit is I, we all love Joel Embiid's personality. He's amazing on Twitter. He's good on video, all that sort of stuff. 
Joel Embiid as a player last year was fantastic, and the fact that he was as good defensively as he was, considering he had only played in college and had, you know, had basically never played against that kind of talent, never did summer league or anything else, to be as dominant as he was in those areas, which generally you would show rust, was incredible for me, and it's so encouraging that if he can see the court with any more regularity, that he's just going to be an absolute monster. I mean, he'll he'll start in the All Star game next year if he if he plays most of the. Um, and not even counting the fan vote aspect of it, I think he'll probably be the guy that deserves to start the All Star game if he plays enough games next year. I mean, he's already he's he already he will he will not start the All Star game. You're saying it because of health or because of capability? Do you, whatever you want. LeBron is going to start the All Star game. Giannis it, is going to start the All Star game. It's just front court, and, right? Yes, and your and your new friend Gordon Hayward is going to start the All Star game. Or uh, Mello, or Melo if he's still around, too. or somebody like I will be I will be stunned. I honestly will be very surprised if Gordon Hayward, if he's healthy, if he has to start the All Star game. That's fair. I'll be very surprised. I think it's fair. I mean, I'll quit. I'll quit my job if Melo starts the All Star game. No, <laughs> he will. That, but with the with the with the player voting involved too, I I, I don't think that I, I don't think that Melo would start. I mean, you, you saw it last year. I think it went pretty. It, the, the the system is in pretty good shape now. The way it worked out, but I it, it I just will think, be it will be if Javale starts in the West. Then we'll know the system is, is well calibrated. <laughs> that's that's true. How could Javale and Zaza both start in the West? I mean, I shouldn't. I guess it shouldn't be quite that strident because I, I there certainly Embiid is good enough that he deserves to be there. I just to me Giannis is now a lock and LeBron is a lock. So you've only got that one spot left. And to me, I just think. I mean, I think Hayward is going to get a million votes from the fans. He's going to put up big numbers. They're going to be the best team in the East. Embiid, even if he's healthy, he's going to sit games. So my guess is just that he'll start. But look, you're right. I, I shouldn't dismiss it so out of hand because uh, you know Embiid is is such a is such a fun personality that it certainly wouldn't be out of the realm for him to to earn that spot. Well, and and like la- last year, I, I had this weird thing when I was going through the all defensive teams because Nate and I did it at we did it during the playoffs. We because we, we just didn't get around to it during the year. And if Embiid had played fifty fifty five games, I probably would have given him my second team all defensive slot. That's how good he was when he played. But it's still a problem when you have players and coaches like the exposure that he's going to get as a player on a team that just hasn't been competitive in a long time and probably isn't going to be playing every night. I just think it's hard for him to get there for the 2017-18 season. Beyond that, anyone's guess. I mean, I think that his, you know, if the Sixers are good this year, he plays a lot, then maybe he becomes a perennial starter. But like Giannis, he's going to have to actually do it first. Yeah, we could yeah, do a, I yeah. think we could do another two hours on how historically talented Joel Embiid is. But what is great about what Tim was saying is that we could have an all-star campaign where it's the Boston fan base defending Gordon Hayward as the patron saint of basketball versus the world supporting Joel Embiid. And it could be very enjoyable for everybody to watch. Yeah. The, between the Philly, between the trust, the process fans and the, the trust, the, the, the Boston front office fans, there would be a lot of, be a lot of internet outrage either way. It's going to be a Twitter bloodbath. That's (laughs) that. That is for sure. That is for sure. So then the last question is more open-ended because I'm not sure that anybody is going to really break into the star tier in this. So it's just what players at any real level of success do you think are going to break out? Uh, so I guess leaving out like the top five picks that are coming into their first or second year. They can still uh, break out if you think. I mean, it's whatever. Sure. I mean, I think Jalen Brown obviously has like a lot of breakout potential. Um, 
you know, there's a, there's a decent amount of hype brewing for him league wide, and he's there's a he's he could be a much more prominent part of the Celtics offensive system this year, um, but that's obviously going to be overshadowed by Gordon Hayward coming to town. But I'm looking at I guess two, three, and D guys in Rondé Hollis Jefferson and Robert Covington. I mean, Covington probably won't have like a like a massive leap breakout, but he could be playing a very useful role on a team that's getting a lot more attention. But Jeff, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, I think, is a shown he's going to be a real defensive stalwart, and there's enough potential for him to be somewhat useful on offense that'll make him really interesting. But uh, the pieces are coming in place in Brooklyn that I think he could be a lot more useful this year. That's funny. I love Rondé personally, and I, I think he's a talented player, but I think he's one of these guys that's become a basketball internet uh, celebrity. And when I say that, it's like there's guys that the basketball Internet gravitates to and and thinks more of than people in the league do. And I I just don't I I think if you look at Rondé, he's essentially going to go into this season as as Brooklyn's starting power forward by default because they don't really have one. And he just he can't shoot at all. And his offensive limitations are so severe that I just don't really know how he can play in today's NBA. I certainly hope that I'm wrong about that long-term because he is a great dude. And like, like Joel, he's a really fun personality. And so, and I personally like him, so I'm rooting for him, but I think it's, this is a huge year for him to prove he can really develop into any kind of an offensive threat at all. Because if he can't just the way the league is going, if you're a complete zero at one end of the court, either way, it's very hard to play now. Um, it's one of the really interesting things I think that's happened over the last few years that you have to at least be passable. Not I shouldn't pa- say passable. You have to at least be able to do something at both ends uh, to avoid being a complete liability for your team. And to this point, Rondé to me hasn't proved he can do that. But to me, uh, I think this whole season is about his teammate D'Angelo Russell. I mean, Brooklyn has clearly made a huge bet on Russell, and I, I think there's little doubt that they're gonna they're gonna try to build, break him down and build him back up and. Look, like the Nets, the Nets would love to see him really take a step forward and and blossom there in his third year in the league. He still isn't even I think he just turned 21 in February, still a young guy. You know, so I, I think to me, if you're looking at breakout guys like with the combination of opportunity and a fresh start and a coach and Kenny Atkinson, that seems like a perfect fit for the way Russell plays. I think all the pieces are in place for Russell to really take off. And now it'll be up to him to prove that he can. And I also agree uh, with your with your Brown pick, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the minutes are divided up there. But he definitely is a guy that has a lot of potential. And it, it will be interesting to see how many minutes he gets uh, for Brad Stevens this year and if he can start to carve out a bigger role up there. I think he'll be getting close to 30 minutes or so. I think he's going to fight his way in. They just they love what he's bringing to the table. That's a and lot they of love minutes. The- I know it is a lot for them. I mean, that's that's basically I mean, I think smart was close to 30, which is so he's basically playing a near six man level amount of minutes. But he just showed that they can put him at just about any position and he'll be effective there and he'll be comfortable. So that's that's what they love about. There's so many lineup options. Who's the fifth starter for the Celtics at the beginning of the year? (laughs) I mean, I think it might be Aaron Baines. But like when they when they signed Aaron Baines, I assumed that they were just slotting him in to where they were putting in Amir Johnson, which means he might just play like three or four minutes and then they sub him out. Yeah. Um, but and the Celtics it, have done that before. Like this, that would be a new thing for them. They they always have started Amir Johnson. Um, they had two big starting when Jared Solinger was there two years ago. It's mostly just so that Al Horford's not starting against centers. 
and that they have flexibility to do it that way, mostly so that when Horford's guarding the one five pick and roll, that they have another big that can basically rotate into the pivot and vertical and go for verticality to contest shots and put less pressure on Horford to retreat as quickly as he can back into the pivot. So it makes sense um, from just the way that they implement the rotations. It'll be tricky because they're gonna we don't know how they're gonna be uh, what their substitution patterns for Isaiah Thomas are gonna be like this year. They might start pulling him quicker into quarters because of the they want to basically prevent him from hitting like five or six minute stints where he starts to get really fatigued and then there's injury concern there. Uh, we don't really know. I'm I'm pulling that out of my butt, by the way, that's not reporting any sort of related news. But there's a few variables there for the way that their rotation minutes management can evolve. But they kind of over the last year and a half have moved more towards subbing guys in earlier and in a more staggered uh, manner and even summing guys out and then bringing them back in after like two minutes. So it's, it's really hard to figure out where that's going to go for now, but I am assuming they're probably going to start with Baines or maybe Marcus Morris at the four. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm going to be fascinated to see Boston the whole year, just how Stevens adjusts to everything that happens, how the ebb and the flow with that team. And my picks, I had a couple of guys. The general rule for me with breakout players is guys that are better than the pop conventional wisdom or just not known, and then players who are going to get the opportunity. So for me, the first one is Robert Covington, because he's always seemed like a supporting player to me, and he just never had good teammates. And then now all of a sudden he, he does. They're going to be figuring it out, but there are going to be some games where they just realize, oh, wow, this guy's actually good and like the Sixers will be maybe they'll have a, a month where they win half to th- where they win three quarters of their games and people will be like oh Bob Covington's part of that and then the other guy that cu- might come out of nowhere for some people is Jared Allen I think Jared Allen has a decent shot of making an all rookie team probably second team because he's gonna play and the Nets center rotation is rough you know it's basically him and Mozgov and Allen you know he runs the floor he'll compete He'll get an opportunity to, to, if he can just do that basic stuff, to to play on the Nets. And that's enough to, to for people. I mean, I don't think many people are going to be watching Brooklyn other than the three of us. But I think that that will be a, a reminder of like, oh, yeah, you know, these young guys that if they, if they just work hard for 20 minutes a game, that there's a place for them in the league right now. I think they're going to be really fun to watch the Nets. I mean, they, they were fun to watch last year a lot of the time, even though their talent level wasn't good, right? I mean, they, they play a fun style of ball. I think Kenny Atkinson has a lot of things he can do with the combination of Lynn and Russell, Jeremy Lynn and, and D'Angelo Russell. They got a lot of interesting young guards, Paris LeVert, uh, Hollis Jefferson. I mean, I, I'm skeptical of him, Jared, in terms of his ability, but I, I, the ability to develop that jump shot. But he's an interesting player. They, they have a lot of ways they can go. I, I think they're going to be – I think they'll be fun to watch um, regardless of the record. I, I really do. I think they'll be – I think they'll be entertaining. And I, I, as far as your fifth starter thing goes, I – I mean, to me, I, I don't think there's any way that they're going to start out Horford at center just because I, I don't think Al will want that. So, yeah, he doesn't. That's why so, they don't do it. Right. So my guess is that Baines will, will, definitely, will definitely start. And, you know, it's, all, it's almost whether, you know, do they start someone like, like Marcus Smart at shooting guard and have, say, Jay Crowder come off the bench? Or do they, uh, or do they you know, they jam Crowder in as a shooting guard, which, I, I mean, they— that is one thing I think that's interesting about Boston. Not that positional fit necessarily really matters anymore, but um, they don't really have a shooting guard. Like it, it is kind of interesting that you have this team where you've got Isaiah Thomas and Marcus Smart, uh, and then you've got Crowder and Hayward and Brown and Tatum and all these guys, Marcus Morris, all these like combo wing guys, but they just don't really have anybody that's like a, a natural two-three. 
they have a lot of three fours and they have a lot of ones. And and Terry Rozier fits in that too. Like they just yeah. it is just kind of interesting how they don't have even one, you know, CJ Miles type guy on the roster, like a a two three wing instead of three four well, wings. And remember, like there are straight twos in the league that can be a challenge for teams to defend. Like I was the one that was sticking with me, even though the Celtics aren't gonna play them very much, is just who guards Lou Williams? Like those kind of like the <laughs> Lou Williams type guys, because that's a specific archetype. And I don't think like Gordon Hayward's going to be standing out there guarding him. Maybe Jalen, they'll give Jalen that spot. I, I'm sure Marcus Smart will do it just because he's it's Marcus Smart. Smart and Rogier are the guys that would be able to guard him. But, you know, but then, I mean, they're they're counting on Rogier to put it together, which it looks, I, I've been hearing a lot of, there's a lot of excitement over what Rogier has been doing in you his offseason. future season franchise cornerstone Terry Rogier? Future franchise cornerstone? You mean current franchise cornerstone, Terry Rogier? Um, for them, it's like if their player development works out, they're in incredible shape. Boston doesn't have a perfect lineup right now. Uh, someone just mentioned the idea of Jay Crowder going to the bench. The greatest achievement of Brad Stevens' career would be if he was somehow able to make to convince Jay Crowder not to revolt if he was moved to the bench to help make way for Gordon Hayward into the starting lineup. Because I assume Jay Crowder would just start destroying everything in sight if anyone ever told him that was what was going to happen. So because you know, that was an interesting subplot of the season was Crowder being really angry when fans were cheering for Gordon Hayward when Utah was in town uh, back in January, I want to say. And Crowder is always cryptically posting stuff on social media about how the haters can't stop him and stuff like that. So, whatever. <laughs> but um, and of course, how could the haters ever stop him? Uh, he is Jay Crowder, of course. But uh, that you know, I, I think that's why I think Jalen Brown is going to emerge as the guy that fits in every single one of these lineups, which is why I think he's going to get a lot of minutes. I mean, and it mostly depends on his shot being reliable enough that they're comfortable as putting him. Uh, putting him out there with multiple other guys that aren't necessarily great shooters like Smart and Rogier, although Rogier has the potential to be a good shooter. But there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of creativity there. And just before we lose the train of thought here, which is one of the reasons why I'm excited about Ronnie Hollis Jefferson in Brooklyn, is that by getting rid of Lopez and moving towards a more motion based, higher pace system, I think that's going to benefit. Ronde a lot and allow him to uh, have a little bit more movement and more freedom that being locked in as a weak side shooter isn't going to happen as much stuff like that for him and he might be able to be playing more in a transition game where he'll his flaws are kind of covered up a little bit I mean that's what Boston used to try to do when they didn't have a lot of actually mature talent on the floor was they were trying to play a really high paced game so that guys their you know basically all their vulnerabilities on offense were kind of covered up for the most part. They're kind of getting away from that now because they're more actually skilled on offense. One small request, Jared, for you is to convey to to Coach Stevens that at some point that is not garbage time. I want to see them play a lineup where every guy's like six eight or six nine, just to see if it can actually work at the NBA level because they can actually do that now. Like they're one of the only teams you know playing Hayward and Tatum and Brown and Crowder. And they can figure out who and, Morris. and Marcus Morris, like just just roll out that lineup for like three minutes or four minutes against, I don't know, some team that's like not terrible, but also not great. And I will just be the ha- I will be incredibly happy. I will. I'll, Listen, I'll be thrilled. I, I feel like you're joking, but this is very serious. Oh, I'm not joking. That I lineup, want that. No, but that but that is a legitimately interesting lineup that they should use. I mean, if 
if Milwaukee can essentially try to do something just like that, why wouldn't Boston try to do that with these guys? I mean, if you if you're doing it with Hayward, their running point, it is extremely viable, especially if you have Horford on the floor as well. You can definitely do an all six, eight, six, nine lineup. It, I think it would work really well. Um, I think Kevin O'Connor wrote a piece that actually talked about that exact lineup concept over at the ringer. So I'll have to double check on that piece. But that would be really cool because they can both run circles around teams and they can bully the crap out of those teams. And they have enough shooters on the floor that teams can't really collapse on them and try to double guys when the ball comes in. So that would be I think that would be one of the most unique and interesting lineups that you could see in the NBA this year. And, I, and I, of course, I'll tell Brad and Brad will listen to me because why wouldn't he? Obviously. Yeah, that's how the media works in Boston. Is and, and, the, and plus, there's so and, few and, reporters here that Brad's taking pointers from and, the reporters. And, and plus, if the if that offense ever stagnates, you know Jason Tatum's going to be ready to take a contested along too. So you, you don't have to worry <laughs> about a 24-second violation. This is why you trade the number one pick. It's so you can get guys that can take step-back 20-footers. That's what the NBA is all about. Is there anything you guys can think of? Obviously, we've been talking for a while. Is there anything you can think of that we haven't talked about that's a part of the... Oh, one other guy I didn't mention, Norman Powell. I think Powell could have a nice year. I don't know if he's going to start because they'll probably use CJ in that role, but I think he's a better player than he's had the chance to show. Yeah, he that's- definitely he definitely won't start because I'm sure they'll start CJ Miles at the three, but I, I agree with you. I'm a big Powell fan, and he, uh, a year before shifted for HC, should be their sixth man. And I, I think... He he could he could be a sneaky pick for six man of the year next season. I mean, I think he'll put up pretty big numbers for them. Should get to play at both guard spots, the two and the three. I mean, I, I think he's going to have a really nice year. So my last note I had here was, which I was about to say is, can Norm Powell still be a breakout guy if we said he was going to be the breakout guy last year? And <laughs> should he be considered the six man of the year candidate from the East? So nice. Just there you that? go. Yeah. They might think alike. That's right. Yeah. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Fun as always. No burning hot takes this year. I think we kept. I think we kept the fire brigade out. I don't think the word trash was said once or garbage. It was tame, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to. We'll have to uh, next year. I'll have to figure out what where, where Tim's fire is, and we'll t- we'll put him on that division. But I I heartily enjoyed this. So thanks again for taking the time. Thanks, guys. Anytime. Thanks again to Tim and Jared for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read Tim Bontemps at the Washington Post, and you can follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, T-I-M-B-O-N-T-E-M-P-S. And you can follow Jared on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, and then his work is at Celtics Blog and for CLNS Media. And CLNS Media is another place that you can check out this podcast. They have a great app. You can look for it there. I'm thrilled to be a part of their family, have been now for a while. So always happy with that. So you can check that out as well. And I think I mentioned this before, but Jared Weiss, NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. And yeah, this is the first of those I actually have because I'm going on a trip. I have the next two Real Jam radios already recorded. One of them is already edited. I did the Central Division with Nate Duncan and Dan Feldman. And then I did the Southeast Division with Adi Joseph and Mike Prada. So those will be the next two weeks of episodes. They're recorded. I'm in the process of editing those, trying to finish them before I leave, but we'll see if there are any promises there. And then you can also check out my work more recently for The Athletic, but I've also done some CBA encyclopedia stuff for Real GM. And then I have a couple pieces, some that are already written, some that are in the works for the sporting news. And so I'm not exactly sure when everything's coming out. Part of the fun of this is that you're going through it. So you should definitely give all that a look. I actually 
just submitted my final edit on my upcoming book, 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die with Triumph Publishing. That will come out November 1st. Very, very excited about that. So you can keep an eye out for that. Pre-sales are on Amazon, but if you want to buy it locally, I, I strongly encourage that. I'm a big fan of local bookstores. So, And if anybody has a link to one that sells online, because sometimes that can be harder to find, I'm happy to use those as links instead because to give them business. And I, I'm a big fan of what uh, Shea Serrano has done with his support group and, and the FA, FOH Army. So anything that I can kind of adopt from his approach, I'm willing to do. And I'm a big supporter of, of independent bookstores. So that's another way that I can do that. So if you have something, shoot it to me. Same way that you can do feedback for the show, good, bad, or indifferent. NBA at gmail.com is the best way. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise to respond, especially because I'm going to be gone for two weeks, but I will go back and, and, and fire through everything. So I appreciate that. And you can also at Danny LaRue on Twitter. But as I said, the next two weeks, that's not really the best way to reach me because I'm not going to be around a whole heck of a lot there. And then after this little batch, the capsule podcasts are going to be interspersed with other things. There are plenty of other topics to discuss, and those will be a part of it. And so, you know, I w- I'm going to have all these done probably before training camp starts. That's kind of my tentative timeline, but something in that range. And then there will be other topics as well. If something big comes up, I'll probably do something with that, though that is more of a dunked on in the purview there. And Nate and I actually just recorded the off-season preview for 2018, which is the last podcast he and I are doing together for a while because he does his teamwork, his team stuff. And that's him and a guest who knows that team really well. So I'm not going to be on that for a little while. You can miss me, I guess, if you want to. And, you know, I'll come back with when I come back with a vengeance with plenty of other stuff, just like usual. And I really do appreciate all the support. If you want to support this show, lots of great things you can do. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing. Still great if that's Apple because they're a big factor in our business. But if it's something else, that's great, too. You know. I use Overcast. That's the podcast player. I I just enjoy it better, but you can use whatever you want if there's a way to do that. And also you can subscribe and download every episode. There may be better metrics available at some point, but right now, if you download the episode and you subscribe, that really does help us out. So appreciate that for everybody who does it. So And then, of course, the last thing is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Audible. Audible.com slash RealGM amazing content. I listen to audiobooks. I think on this trip, I'm probably going to hammer through another few because I I heartily enjoy it. I think it's a great way to learn about the world or if you just want to be entertained. Uh, I remember Nate and I were doing a road road trip together and we listened to uh, a science fiction book and it was very, very interesting. And I'm more in the nonfiction realm for audiobooks, but I appreciated that too. And there are a lot of different ways you can do it. So again, audible.com slash real GM. That is more than enough rambling at this point. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm -hmm.